0: just send us an email, use the contact button on our website, retirementunlimited.com or just give our office a call. our phone number is 951-684-7011. I just got back from a conference, um, had a, it was really good. We had some great economic data and this is one I really enjoy going to every year because it's got some key individuals Mm. there one of them is this Dr. David Kelly. Now, he's the chief uh, global strategist for J.P. Morgan. Mm-hmm. And I've listened to him several years, and he's pretty much spot on. In addition to that, we have good information from Edward Yardini. Uh, we've talked to, uh, I think you've gone to a conference with...
1: Um, yeah, I went to J- Jeremy Spiegel just uh, a few months ago. And, and we also have a guy named Jason Thomas that we talk with. And, and these you know names that we walk through... These are some stellar minds, stellar economic views. But it's interesting where we're at in the world. Some of them have different views. Some of them are, I think, more than just different views. They're looking at different things. And because of that, there's the the old parable of uh, an elephant. Someone's feeling the trunk. It's this. Someone feels the ears. It's that um it's similar of people are looking at different pieces of the, the the domestic and the world economy and they see it in different ways right and we want to as, as part of what we do we want to talk to all these people we want to get yeah. all the perspectives yeah
0: I, I want i want different opinions and i want to see where they cross in other words where they align up and they have the same view of the world but also we're looking for people that have a different view of the world and yeah. they believe there's going to be a different outcome and one of the things that i know that um uh, Jeremy Siegel talked about, and we've talked about it with Jason Thomas, our basically our CIO. Uh, I guess we call yeah. it an external, however you want to. Yeah, a, a it's probably our
1: closest economist yeah. that we work with on a regular basis. On a
0: regular basis, and then talking with like David Kelly and such. You know, the interest rate. You know, the inversion of interest rates has become kind of a top of subject matter. And yeah. and, and that that's reflected based upon inflation. So yeah. as long as inflation continues to go is that going to have an impact upon, will the Federal Reserve continue to increase interest rates? Yeah. And will they overcorrect? I think that is the key question That's is, will the Federal Reserve overdo it? And will it, in fact, uh, really hit the economy
1: hard? Yeah. That's probably the, the biggest question we, right. we we have people discussing right now is, is inflation is still at an elevated level? And the question is, is it is it still going up? Is it coming down? The Fed is still increasing rates to kind of bring things down. And so the question is, just like you said, we know where we're at right now in time. Right. But what comes next? And Jeremy Spiegel, just an example, Jeremy Jeremy Siegel feels that the Fed should have stopped raising interest rates months ago. Getting, the end of last year should have been the last one.
0: right? And then the other, you know, just to counter that or not to counter, but to come alongside of that, David Kelly said that the Federal Reserve uses owner's equivalent rent, which is basically real estate. So mm. it's, it's shelter. So he puts it all under the title of shelter, but it's obviously mortgage rates have gone up on, on people buying a home, mm-hmm. but also rents gone up over the last couple of years mm-hmm. dramatically. He feels like that shouldn't even be part of the
1: equation. Mm-hmm. Because so if you look at inflation, the Fed's counting where you live. Exactly. he's David said, Kelly's saying it doesn't even matter.
0: Because he said he said it's so lagging. He mm-hmm. said when you when you put an owner equivalent rent on something, what you're doing is you're taking your individual home. And let's say you own your home. Well, the federal reserve looks at your home and says what would you rent that home out for oh interesting he said it's it's not part of inflation because if you own your home what do
1: you care yeah so yeah. someone's been in a house for 20 years they keep yeah. getting these rent increases I guess, so to speak yeah. even though in real life they're not feeling
0: yeah and he said and it's just not a real number and mm. so
1: uh it's
0: interesting to talk to him he says it's in it it's in the data but he said he doesn't even think it should be there and he thinks wow. it's such a lagging indicator uh what he did is he showed a heat map showing all the various different uh, sectors of the economy. And he said the only one right now that so to speak is hot is the shelter, shelter mm. one. All the rest of them are starting to cool.
1: So different ones being energy or food consumer or consumer
0: staples, you know, healthcare, all those all those factors are coming down. Mm. Yeah. Um and they're they're still elevated above their what what the Federal Reserve would like to see, but they're clearly declining.
1: Yeah, you know. And that's an interesting moment for the Fed. You know, they've the Federal Reserve has been increasing interest rates with the idea that they're going to bring down inflation, and it, it sounds like for, through you know, David Kelly's view and Jeremy Siegel's view, they've they're accomplishing it. I wouldn't say they're accomplished, but they're accomplishing it in the sense that, that these inflation numbers they're slowed; they're no right. longer increasing, and some of them are even starting to come down. And the question we, we have, and I think everybody has, is you know the, what the Fed is doing. There's a lag in the economy, kind of like driving in snow or driving in the rain. They they turn right. the wheel. You kind of have to wait for everything to grip and respond. So they've made some changes in the interest rates, and they're kind of waiting for the world, for our economy to respond. And uh, you know, I think David Kelly and Jeremy Siegel are probably on the same page that they would say the Fed should either stop now or should have already stopped. Right. And the risk being that they are going to turn too far and drive the economy into a deeper, you know, hard landing type. It, it, I mean,
0: the people that are listening to us, this is really important stuff mm. because as you invest, you don't, you can't wait until all the damage is done, so to speak. And so you're anticipating interest rates going higher and what would cause interest rates to go higher, what would happen to real estate values, Mm -hmm. what would happen to unemployment, what would happen to the cost of goods and services. All these factors are, you know, that we're anticipating what's gonna happen if. Yeah. And um generally speaking, most economists, most people that, and these are people that aren't just sitting in a in a tower someplace saying this is what they see in the world. These are people that actually invest money.
1: Yeah. They manage money for people or academically, yeah.
0: Yeah. And they're they're people that we use in some cases, but they're actually hands-on. So they're not theoretical. They're yeah. very practical in their view. And that's why we bring in a multiple number of economists. But I would say uh, four out of six or five out of six are generally positive about the future going forward. Yeah. They, they think there's going to be an adjustment still in front of us, yeah. but they think the time when so we start investing is
1: going to be pretty pretty soon. pretty soon. And that's, I mean, part of this is we're all talking long term. Right. None of this is traders this week. None of this is what's going to happen this year. This is looking at the next decade and yeah. saying, okay, where are we going to get to? So those two we just spoke about kind of see, hey, maybe the Fed's gone too far. Maybe there's going to be a harder Pain in the short term, the next year before it gets better. Gunlock, Jeffrey Gunlock, you guys to bring capital. him up. Yeah. He's um, a bond trader. He's really, really well respected. It, it, for
0: those of you that have a historical reference, uh, Jeffrey Gunlock is considered the bond king. And he took the, uh, so to speak, the title away from Bill Gross, who headed up PIMCO for for decades. And he's considered a
1: um, a bond expert. And yeah. his his comments are very contrary to what His other comments are saying we're headed for a cliff. He's like, not just a right. part like like uh, David Kelly and Jeremy Siegel might say we're going to have a, a rough landing and then we'll see a great economy. Um, Jeffrey Gunlock is kind of saying we're coming up to this cliff and it's going to fall. I think a huge difference. So the, the two we just spoke, Doctor uh, Mr. Kelly and Siegel, they're both looking at um, inflation numbers. They're looking at kind of a broad economy. Jeffrey Gunlock is looking very much at bonds. That's what he does. And we have what's called an inverted yield curve right now, meaning that short-term returns on bonds are higher right. than long-term, meaning if you give me the money for a day, I'll give you, you know, a lot of interest. If you give me the money for a year, I'll only give you a little bit of interest. Which doesn't make any sense. It does make sense. It's, it's backwards.
0: It's the exact opposite of what most people. Yes. The longer you have the money out, the more interest you would expect to get for that money, exactly. right?
1: So we're in a weird environment in where short-term bond investing is much more appealing than long-term investing. And when when those flip, we get the what's called the inverted. It's, it's what
0: rate. they refer to inversion. Yeah, and and we look at that
1: carefully because it's it's a pretty certain predictor of recession, right? Yes. And so when that first inverted, a lot of people said, hey, that, that's a, a pretty clear trigger right. that we're going to have rough seas ahead. And Jeffrey Gunlock going through that is saying, we're going to have a really hard time the way the numbers are. So it's, it's interesting. So we have, you know, some that are saying it's going to be tough. Gunlock is saying it's going to be potentially devastating, be very careful. Then we have some others, and I think Edward Yardini is a, is a good okay. one to bring in. He is looking more at um, the commodity prices. And how they're changing. Right. He's looking more at the employment and, numbers. And the
0: commodity prices that he looks at is not what most people would think. You know, like oil, gold, silver, you know, steel, those kinds. He looks at a basket of commodities that are really basic in manufacturing, mm. like paper, tin, you know, uh, waste waste retrieval. He's looking at those kind of commodity yeah, prices. things that everyone's
1: using to make right. stuff.
0: But you don't. But you don't normally think about it. I yeah. mean, that's
1: not the highlight of what they're what they normally. Yeah, operate. oil prices. You hear that on the news, right? right? I don't know what that means to most people to say you know, right. the crude gallon is you know, right. the crude barrel. But he's looking at these the very specific things that he feels really impact our economy. And he, I would say, has the the rosiest view of this to say the economy is strong. The the supplier prices are coming back into normal. We have a bright future ahead, and for all of these, the timing is a key item. Like, right. um, you know, ten years from now, they could all be right. You know, by then. But uh, Yardini, I think, is a really interesting one. He sees the strength of the economy, and especially you know, we move from the, the prices, but over to employment. Uh, as just a comment, we've never had a recession with
0: low unemployment, and we. And this unemployment is real. I just was. I came out, like I said, I went to this conference, but I also met with a co- client outside of Phoenix. And their turnover rate amongst uh, their company rebuilds uh, very specific, very specific engines. And they're looking for people that have some trade ability. Mm-hmm. They bring them in, but they're also going to train them. He was telling me his turnover rate. I mean, he, he's lucky if he can keep a keep an employee for about a month or two. Wow. He said he's had literally employees package up the uniform, put it in a mail and send it to them and say, thank you, I'm not coming back. I mean, that kind of resignation. And I, I was, and so I went through his benefits. His benefits are very competitive, mm-hmm. but he said they just don't, they're not committed to the long term, I yeah. guess is the best way and to say And I'm that.
1: assuming they're not leaving to just not work. They probably got a better job or a higher pay or some other dynamic. And so it's, it's hard to get people still. And um, I remember a number of clients who were looking to hire in the midst of the pandemic and there was just no one available. And the idea to say, hey, unemployment was very low then. To say unemployment is going to increase and we'll you know, have a, a loosening up, it is kind of right, but I wouldn't say meaningfully. Um, right? You know, I think people who are interviewing might be looking to change jobs, but it's not the folks who are staying on the sidelines and saying, "Man, I, I wish I had a job. I just can't find one." Now, there's
0: a, there's a comment that David Kelly talked about, which was really kind of threw me by surprise. He said that the reason that we have this unemployment, in other words, this turnover rate with these younger people, he says, because unions have diminished. And I kind of did I kind of did a a take back. You know, I went, what? He said, if you think about it, unions has such a strong influence of the employment structure. So if you belong to a union, whatever Mm. the trade was, you were given you were taken, you were taken to a company or you were asked to show up at a company, but you did work. He said the union influence on maintaining steady employment was very strong. He said now the you know the union membership has dropped from twenty five percent down to less than ten percent. He said a lot of it because every single person, more and more people are managing their own employment. Hmm. So he kind of went back, and I I had to to really kind of settle on that yeah. and think is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah,
1: and, well, and that's I mean probably a whole conversation to I mean, I say I hear in the news that Amazon warehouses. Have been trying to unionize across the country. and There's been a fight right. and an argument to say are unions helpful in the long term with keeping steady, useful employment. But to say that unions are smaller than they were, I, I guess that probably makes sense. Yeah, yeah I, I think it, of that as being as it was. You know, and and I think, ago. I think, but it was, it was
0: a, it was a contrary view that I didn't hear before. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, when he said that, I, I had to stop and went, "Okay, wait a minute." Because normally when you're talking with our clients, they either come out of a business ownership or they've been in some kind of management and they're trying to, and they come from a um, historical base where you took a job and you stayed in that job mm. for, you know, till your retirement almost. Yeah, yeah. They're not seeing that right now. And they're... Um, you know, they everybody blames the millennials, I guess. Like the millennials are getting a bad rap. But yeah. I think it has a lot to do with their baby boomer parents, too, uh, and what they're telling their, what they're requiring of their kids to do.
1: Yeah. And what work is expected and what work is possible. I mean, there's a number of folks I, I talked to that, that remote work is becoming such a unique dynamic post-COVID right. that if, if someone is willing to provide a, a flexible schedule, whether it's fully remote or even just partly office, part not that expands their ability to find a workforce. Right. And a number of folks who used to commute, you know, it was the job, right? You had to drive. This is the only way to do this. Well, that's no longer the case. I have some family members who work entirely remotely Yeah, and uh, they love it. They're working for companies that work, are, are- And they
0: moved from a larger the... urban area to a smaller small, yep, western small, town, right? Yep. And they're still able to work uh, their jobs. Yeah. Right?
1: They wanted small town living and they're excited about that, but their jobs they're able to keep and just do it remotely. And it's been yep. a a great benefit to them and even you think of that small town community it now has these streams of income coming from outside the town in virtually and then those dollars get spent in the small town we'll see if there's a revitalization of smaller towns i'm not sure but but companies looking for employees you know they don't just have to look at who lives in a you know 10 or 20 mile right. radius they're being able to look across the country if they can adapt and if they can adjust and um, I, I think that's part of uh we've talked about it before on these episodes of companies that can utilize technology, not just create it, but that can utilize it, may have a really bright future going forward.
0: Yeah, so we're, we're, we're having a conversation. We've gathered over the last two months, we've sat down and we've listened to and got and enabled to quiz people that we believe that are really, really, they have a perspective on the economy and investing that is unique because of their background and experience and education. We're bringing that information to you. Uh, stay tuned for our next section. We're just gonna continue our conversation. 8371. Or visit me, Randy Barkley, at retirementunlimited.com. Advisory services offered through Tricord Advisors Incorporated, a registered investment advisor, clearing through TD Ameritrade member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB.
1: AM590, the answer.
0: Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation about where are we right now and where where's the world going to turn to
1: in the next year? Yeah, we've been talking with some of the economists that we like and that we listen to and some of the question is, what do you do with this information? And right. we we struggle with that on a regular basis. Of you know, does this mean anything to the future, or is it simply a good kind of weather vein? You know, we right. we know this is what this is where the wind is blowing from. But what what do we do with the sales? How do we direct the ship? And one of the things that we've been talking a lot is the difference in value and growth, not, not just in what will be, but also what has. So what's been. the difference between a value stock and a growth stock? Yeah, mean? so a growth that? stock generally is, is a company that is not paying out any dividends, right? Whatever they earn, whatever that excess is, they're using it to either go into research and development, they're using it to acquire other companies. Right. An example could be, say, Facebook. You know, Facebook is still growing, you know, and then we'll see how long they can keep growing, but they're buying up other companies, right. they're putting money into developing their own business. There's other companies that have uh, stopped growing in that sense, they're still a, a functioning growing company, but they're, they're the the reason people invest in them is, is their value, meaning that they generate a good amount of income. And then after they've generated that income, they push it out to their, their owners, to the to their stockholders. And so, you know, that's a, that's a split. There's a few different splits you can use, but a big one is to say some pay dividends whenever they get extra money, they give it to the, the, sh- the shareholders. So there's a constant value. Others that are using all that money just to grow. And if you buy a growth company, you don't expect to see anything from them. But 10 years from now, you want your price to be much higher. Your stock price. And again, what what drove
0: growth companies was the fact the cost of money was very minimal. Uh, large, large, uh, high tech companies, things that, you know, companies that we would recognize readily by name, you know, Microsoft and Google and such as that, but also a whole slew of other companies, they could
1: borrow at a very, very low cost. That all changed in January last year. Yeah. So before, if they had an idea, a project, they could borrow money, they could throw resources at it and they could build something better into the future. Well, when you're right, when that, that changed and interest rates went up. Well, now that that fun project that was really interesting it, it's going to have a real price tag with the interest you're gonna have to pay on these loans and the
0: reset of those overall stock values um was pretty dramatic in the in the growth component yeah now the question is is right now have they dropped to such a point right now are they investable yeah we we tried to limit our exposure to growth companies over the last year we went to more value-based companies mm-hmm. and companies that pay dividends but but there's been a clear correction in the in the growth components, right? Yeah. I
1: mean, over the recent year or so, that's the last year, there's a number of those. that have come down 30%. I mean, Tesla at one point was 70% down. Right. Just, a lot of these tech companies that were 30% down from where they had been. The question is, is that far enough? Right. You know, smart minds differ on that. But there's a, a consensus going forward that, that we see at least amongst the different economists that growth companies that were just running away with the bag, it seemed, may not have the ability to do that. And, and I think a good explanation, I just all of a sudden I was thinking
0: about if I was talking to a client about this, you know, a growth company is that your expectation is you're going to get future returns. Mm-hmm. You know, you're expecting the company is smart enough in their reinvestment that 10 years from now, you're going to get that dramatic increase mm-hmm. in the value the dollar for dollar, you know, what you invested and what you hope to reap from it. Whereas a value-based company is more consistent. They're paying you the dividends. You're not, you're not paying in advance for that growth. You're paying for that consistency and the development yeah. and the sale of existing products, and they'll pay
1: you a dividend. Yeah. So it's interesting, even though you've spent the timeline, the value-based companies are kind of saying, I expect you to do good work today right. and pay me money today. Whereas the growth companies say, I don't expect anything from you today, right. but five, 10 years from now, wow, you better have something amazing. And companies are different of how they pay out money and how they grow. Right. And these are all, I mean, we're talking about some Fortune 500 large companies. They're just treated differently in the market. And companies today that are producing strong dividends, as we talked about in the last section, these different economists, Edward Yardini has been looking a lot at the prices of, of raw goods coming in, the employment, and you know, kind of what, what that is. And so when you look at that, you he's looking at value companies. So right. like, wh- what can you do for me today? What? How much does it cost you to get goods, to create a new product, and to sell it? And that value, can you pass it to shareholders? That's kind of a value proposition, whereas other companies that they're investing in deeper in the future. So there's potentially a change in the winds that all these stocks will all do bad and will all do well at different times. Right. But there might be a, a larger you know, decade-long shift of saying these value stocks that can do something good now, might have more value and, and provide greater benefit to portfolios in, in the near future.
0: Yeah, and minimizing your exposure to something that's overvalued, and that's what we did last year is we minimized mm-hmm. our exposure to these overvalued stocks. Now, all of a sudden, there's been a correction in the marketplace, so we have to look at those. And we haven't just thrown the baby out with the bathwater. We still maintain a certain uh, number of companies that we like like those
1: positions. Yeah, and we rebalance, right? If right. we have a large holding in something, right. we might trim it and bring it back. right. But I think I think the the key here is the
0: value versus growth, and the difference right now growth still is pricey in relationship to historical averages, whereas value uh, is still kind of underpriced. In mm-hmm. other words, there's still uh, there's still a higher upside, I guess, or a potential yeah. upside on value versus growth.
1: Yeah, and that's a comment to say you know beginning of 2022, so about a year, a little over a year ago we were at a really big disconnect. Right. We had growth companies that had extremely high valuations. and We had some value companies that were just really low. And people were looking at this. Some said, hey, it's a new normal. This is the world now. <laughs> tech, tech matters and these don't. Right. Other people were looking at it and saying, this is so far out of balance. There's no way I would you know, buy a growth company at this price when I could be buying this value company at a much lower price. Um, and, and the, and the, equal, the equalizer is when the
0: Fed increased the interest rates. Yes. That's what caused the rebalance immediately at that point in time, because the market then realized you cannot just continue to have these low interest rates and, and not have inflation. So inflation came into the marketplace. The Fed
1: increased interest rates, but it did a reset on yeah. value versus growth. Right. And, and we saw that in most everyone's <laughs> portfolios right. saw that as, for sure. as, you know, as people are out there listening. They saw a lot of these growth holdings that had done so well. They were so proud to be holding oh, yeah. you know, whatever stock. All of a sudden they saw it plummeting and plummeting and plummeting um, and whether or not adjustments were made, that, that's per person. But but that that was a change. And so now that we've seen that change, one of the questions we always ask is, is it far enough? Maybe. Maybe it has been.
0: Again, I, I think it, it it may be towards the bottom. It may have some to correct, but it's a lot closer to the bottom than it was a year ago. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and in then this the, stage, the question: What do you do from here? It it, it we'll see soon. Yeah, you know? right. Um, you know, we, we see that it could be six months, a year. It, it, it could be you know, w- without a, a date on it. And right now, we're
0: patient because we can put short-term money into treasuries that we're going to making four or five percent in some cases. Yep. and these are what we call cash equivalents. Well, we couldn't do that over a year ago. Yeah, and so now we can put we can put money into something that's going to make at least some interest that's reasonable for the for the investment that you're making into those things.
1: yeah. If you missed any part of this episode or radio program, you can catch us online. You can find our YouTube channel or you can go to retirementunlimited.com and we have uh, episodes posted on our website. Until next week, folks,
0: may you grow in wisdom and knowledge. Thank you for listening.